This episode is brought to you by O.H. Ingram River Aged Whiskey. O.H. Ingram River Aged is the only whiskey in the world aged in a floating barrel house on the Mississippi River. The constant motion of the river combines with its distinct microclimate to provoke a unique interaction between the whiskey and the barrel that is unachievable in a traditional barrel house. The Mississippi's powerful current, its humidity and extreme temperature fluctuations, ensure that the whiskey never stops working inside those barrels. It is a modern innovation inspired by tradition. Please visit IngramWhiskey.com to learn more and find your closest retailer. That's I-N-G-R-A-M-W-H-I-S-K-E-Y dot com. Welcome to a very special episode of Between the Levees. I'm joined today by the proprietor of O.H. Ingram Whiskey, Mr. Hank Ingram. Thank you for joining me. Good morning, Tim. Great to be with you. Uh, Tell me a little bit about your business. Well, uh, we age bourbon and whiskey inside of a barge on the Mississippi River. So we are the only whiskey company out there and uh, maybe the only barge company uh, aging whiskey in a barge. Now, we do that because it changes the way the whiskey and and the barrel interact together. But I'm sure we'll get into that later. I think so. Uh, Is it just one barge still? We are actually up to our second barge. So we've got um, INO eight ones. I I wish I had the number. They would be on on the label there. Yep, that barge. IN068518 uh, was the first one. That's right. Now we've got an ING1408, uh, I think. Uh, it okay. rolls off the tongue a little easier. Sure. Uh, how many barrels fit in each, each uh, barge? 3,000 barrels. Really? Yeah. And okay, now that's well, because we, uh, we rack them in a certain way where they're on their side. So it allows... Um, allows the whiskey to get a little bit more surface area than if we were just stacking them up on pallets, for instance. Well, some time ago you were born, I assume around the Nashville area. That's Tell right. me a little bit about that. Uh, well, I don't remember the uh, the early days of it, um, but uh, I, I was, was born in 1990 and uh, grew up uh, actually in uh, Nashville and uh, in Birmingham. So uh, parents divorced and, and grew up kind of between the two towns. Um, I, uh, really, uh, I'd say got exposed to the river at a young age, uh, being in the business, uh, had, I had the opportunity to grow up around it, um, but did not know much about barges or, or the river or, or how big they were, what they moved. Um, it was just, you know, Dad went off and came back at the end of the day. And uh, I know there are these boats, but I, I didn't know a whole lot more other than that. Certainly didn't know you right. could age whiskey in them. Sure. Took a few years to figure that one out. What, what, what did your father do with the company at the time? Um, so uh, in the early 90s, uh, my grandfather uh, passed away, Bronson Ingram. In, uh, in 95. And so uh, my dad and, and uncle, uh, my dad's Oren and uh, my uncle John, uh, they basically uh, took over the, the, the company with, with their mother stepping in as, uh, as chairman. And uh, I'd say she kept uh, the, she, she kept everything running and, and kept the order at the dinner table. And sure. uh, dad, 
uh, really spent his time on the the barge side, and uh, Uncle John spent his time on the book side. So uh, they each had their own area of specialization. Um, but uh, you know, again, it was one of those things. Uh, business really never came home. So uh, I just knew Dad did something on the river. I just never really knew what. Now back in. I believe it was what 1946 your grandfather began an oil company yeah so um well great grandfather uh oh ingram uh who also went by hank ingram uh he okay. uh actually married a girl um from i think uh saint paul and uh moved the family down to to nashville her family had an interest in uh the the, the tufting business and uh, which I think they made socks is a, another fancy way of tufting means socks uh, and and he sold that business uh, and used the 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 income there to to get us into the oil business so um, Coke Industries today uh, the the owners of that business and uh, well their father and my great grandfather were, were business partners on the uh, uh, in the thirties on this, uh, oil refinery called, uh, Wood River, uh, oil refining. And in order to move the product out of the refinery, they had to uh, essentially rely on barges. Um, there wasn't great standardization in the industry at the time, and there was not a high degree of reliability. So they figured we can, we can do this ourselves and, uh, and started a barge business uh, just to move the oil around. So uh, that was the beginning of Ingram Barge Company, was 1946. Okay. I mean, they were involved in a refinery down here in the, in Louisiana at some point. That's, that's that right. Correct? Yeah. Um, you know, the, the specifics, I, I'd say, have been best recounted to me by my grandmother uh, around the dinner table. But um, yes, uh, built a, a refinery there in Miro. Um, it was to take advantage of a, um, the, the, the government at the time in the 70s had changed uh, the import rules and we're gonna allow refining of light sweet crude for which this refinery was built. And um, actually right before it was finalized or finished, uh, the government changed the rules. And so um, had to figure out what to do with this refinery, which uh, had a, a bit of a rule change in, in the middle of, of construction. So. Uh, you know, it was an interesting chapter, I'd, I'd say, in the family history. But uh, um, the, uh, the the oil side of the business, my uh, grandfather and his brother, uh, they actually wound up um, splitting the company. It used to be um, Ingram Corporation. And uh, my, my grandfather split off from my great uncle who kept the oil side of the business. Uh, and then my, my grandfather kept the, the barge side and, and which uh, was early Ingram Book Company at the time, and, and that's when Ingram Industries began. Okay, and these days I did see that you were involved to some degree in this uh, the soccer club. Yeah. How recent was that? Tell me about that. Well, um, so the soccer club was a really interesting uh, turn of events. If you go back uh, to, oh gosh, uh, make sure I get my timeline here. I think it was 2000, it was beginning of 2016, and uh, Nashville uh, was not a, uh, you know, it, it was a, a Predators and, and Titans town. Um, 
Major right. League Soccer had announced that they were going to uh, take an expansion from, I think at the time it was 24 teams. They were going to go up to 28 teams and and hold off on expansion for a bit. So there were four new expansion slots that were coming out. And uh, there was a, a group here in Nashville that uh, approached my uncle. And uh, my uncle's a bit of a, a sports enthusiast, to say the least, uh, and said, you know, would you sure. be interested in, in in leading an ownership bid to try to bring a major league soccer team to Nashville? Uh, I mean, the, the, this group literally cold called the, the offices of major league soccer and said, uh, hey, we'd like to bring a team to Nashville. And I think they eventually got the right person who said, well, that's nice. Um, there's about a dozen other cities that have been working on this for years. Um, so the chances of you, you know, landing a, an expansion franchise are are limited, but we, we appreciate the interest. And at the time, yeah. the guys were really just trying to do this as a uh, business development, economic development for for Nashville and 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 show Nashville as a world class city because soccer is a global sport. And um, so that was really the, the 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 impetus behind that. So. Uh, make a long story long uh my my uncle uh led up this uh this bid to bring major league soccer to nashville and uh we had a lot of things go really 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 right for us um primarily all those other cities uh ahead of us weren't nashville uh in 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 some extent so they had some issues that they couldn't get to the to the finish line uh nashville's got this really great ability to come together around big things and put politics and personal uh, beefs aside and and really coalesce. And uh, the mayor at the time uh, lent her support and um, this this bid, which started out um, really as the, the 13th of 12 cities vying for an expansion over the course of a year, uh, pretty much got the stadium plan done, proved that Nashville was a soccer market, and uh, at the end of it all, um, were awarded an expansion before any of the other 12 cities uh, announced, and just a testament to, I think, a lot of people coming together. It really took a village in that uh, that respect. Um, Now, I I helped out in a very, very small fashion um, with the financial modeling. I just uh, finished my my business school MBA at Vanderbilt. And uh, they said, hey, we, we need somebody to help with the financial modeling. So um, I jumped in on that. Um, at once the uh, the team was awarded, there was a lot of behind the scenes uh, work to make uh, that that franchise come together. And uh, they, they said, hey, would you want to continue on uh, helping out? Um, and I said, of course, I mean, soccer's Fun. I mean, who who doesn't want to say uh, uh, you know yes to an opportunity to work in sports? It's a it's kind of a, a small world. Um, and we hired a gentleman named Ian Ayer, who was the uh, the CEO of Liverpool uh, from Liverpool, and actually the CEO of the soccer club was uh, the the last year he was there, tw- 2016. I think he was awarded um, CEO of the year for the Premier League. Uh, so really a, a top dog and and got to uh, work with him. Nicest guy. Uh, I, I mean, just a, a real stand up individual. And um, he said, well, you know, Hank, I, I noticed you 
you like to talk and uh, and you you you're a great salesman. Uh, so why don't you uh, help us out on the on the sponsorship side and and help put together some uh, some sponsors for uh, the the new team, which didn't exist. Which by the way, selling a vision of soccer in the South uh, when people can't see it, and uh, you know we had this yeah. we had this idea that uh, the soccer uh, was was going to be. Um, we were going to keep a very clean look. Again, Ian uh, really had, uh, I'd say, a lot of great vision there. Uh, and so we were out in the market asking what for Nashville would be kind of above market rates, um, but saying, well, look, you're going to be one of a few. We're not going to just put a, a sticker on anything in the building. And uh, it resonated with some folks. It, it, it didn't resonate with others, but really learned a lot about um, telling a story and um, selling uh, the vision of something to come. And uh, I think applying that in the, the, the whiskey uh, has been, uh, it's been tremendously helpful uh, because I, I'll tell you, um, the barge business and the whiskey business are very different. Uh, business to business and business to, a, to consumer, uh, building a brand is a, is a whole different animal. And, and so, uh, what's great about sports is it's really both. There's a business side of it, but then there is very much that, that consumer uh, interaction. And so um, I, I did a, a, a brief stint at the soccer club. I, I think I was there for a total of, of um, really two years at the club and, you know, two other years uh, uh, helping build it. So um, it was certainly a, a fun chapter. Is, uh, is the O.H. Ingram whiskey line a separate business from all of this or does it fall under an umbrella with any other? No, this is um, this is my own. So, um, back when uh, I, I was conceptualizing this, uh, it, it was really a business school project, and uh, I took a class that required you to come up with a concept uh, that to, to create a business. And I think there were forty people in the class, uh, and eight people were. Uh, everybody had to present an idea. Eight people were then chosen. Uh, based on the strength of the idea, to then, over the course of a of a eight week class, put together a team, come up with a business plan, and and finally present at the end of it. So, uh, I did uh, I did this. I put together this business plan with um, with some classmates. Which business school? Um, the the best thing that came out of that, I think, was a uh, I got a, a free business plan out of it, or or at least I'm hoping that that business plan will you know, pay off the investment. But sure. uh, so um, I, I came out of school uh, with this idea. Uh, we actually won our class project, um, came in first for for the uh, the business plan. And at that time, I was in business school and uh, business school does not pay uh, at, at all. So, um, you know, I, I had this idea, but no means to really make it come to together. So uh, I spoke with some in my family and I said, hey, I'd, I'd really like to try this out. And and their response was, um, sounds fun. Um, not really sure we think this is a real business. It's kind of a crazy idea. And um, oh, by the way, you know, what happens if the whiskey explodes? Um, you know, they started to ask, you know, risk mitigation questions and all these things. Right, like, right. I, I just, I just wanted to make whiskey and, you know, see if we could make it taste better by putting it in a barge. 
um, had to get them over what what that meant too. But that was was where that marketing came in handy. Um, and, and so um, I I started Brown Water Spirits. You know, in in the barge business, we call the river the brown water, right? Well, that's what yep. they also call uh, bourbon. So it, it seemed fitting yep. to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I'm I'm a finance guy. I'm not a marketing guy. So uh, I just had to have some name to to put the uh, all the permits that we were going to have to pursue under. Um, so started Brown Water Spirits in in 2015 and uh, and and set out to uh, to put whiskey on a barge, which as I soon came to find out, is a lot harder than just taking uh, a whiskey barrel and putting on a barge because uh, there's rules, there's regulations, um, people want to have taxes paid, and uh, you have to be set up in systems for those taxes to be collected, and you have to file taxes. So the simple idea of let's put whiskey on a barge and see what happens was about a 18 month journey to just put a barrel on a barge. So it's quite the learning opportunity. Right. And I'd like to get back into those details a little bit later, but uh, I think I saw you studied uh, Spanish language in undergrad. See, were you always drawn to foreign languages academically or were you growing up in school drawn to anything else specifically? Um, Well, originally I started out, actually taking French um, in like first grade, uh, you know, didn't know anything about, you know, the culture of France or, or really the Spanish culture either. Um, it was just kind of a class to take, uh, but switched over. My mom switched me over to Spanish and, and said, you know, I think this is something you need to learn. Um, there's a bit of a demographic shift going on. Of course, she never made those, uh, those justifications, she said, you're just, you're taking Spanish now. I said, okay. Um, and, you know, I really uh, enjoyed uh, being able to read another language. Uh, I mean, just the simple joy of reading the the Spanish instructions and the English instructions on the warning label of what not to do. I'm like, ah, oh, ah, oh, I, I get, I get that. Um, and and it's coming handy in in my adult life, um, certainly with travel to South America. Uh, but uh, in, you know, I think being able to think and speak in two languages is uh, um, it's a it's an interesting concept to Americans. It's a a given to Europeans. So as I've run across Europeans, they're you know I say, well, how many languages do you speak? And they're like, duh, like five. <laughs> So, yeah, I think it's eye opening if, right. if you start hanging out with, uh, you know, Germans or or Italians or whatever. They're just like, well, our country is the size of, of Kentucky. So, yeah, we yeah, we can't just rely on one to even right. drive three hours away. Right. Uh, when did you first take notice of the of the barge company and the book? company? When did it become something more than just my dad leaves and gets back? You know, um, I, I would say it probably wasn't until until high school uh, when I started to take a little bit more of an interest in. I've always I've always liked to tinker, uh, and and unfortunately, usually take things apart. Putting them back together was always the trick. Um, I was really good at taking <laughs> yeah. them apart. Yeah. Uh, I I had remote control cars. I I do remote control planes, uh, 
and I crashed a lot of planes, uh, <laughs> remote control. Um, but I, I kept kind of like upgrading for some reason. It's like, okay, great. Well, I know I haven't mastered this level, but I want to throw ailerons in there and, and, and things that are other axes of error. Um, so I've always liked to push myself and, and play around with things. Um, in, in high school, I think that's kind of when you, you start to kind of realize, okay, what, what do your parents do when, when they're not at home and, and ask those questions. Um, and, you know, again, I think to me, the, the barges, uh, the, the more I, I spent time on them, the, the more I just loved, uh, the, the mechanics of the engine room. And, you know, I loved remote control cars. Uh, I'd go into a, a towboat engine room and I mean, you just talk about, it, it's kind of like walking into a Home Depot. You, you just look around and it's just, ah, there's so much potential right. here. There's so many yep. things I could touch. <laughs> uh, and, and, and so that I think is, is where I, I started to, to, to get interested. Um, it, it wasn't so much in a, on a business side, but as a, I just want to know how all this stuff works, which my dad, it drove him crazy because I'd always break the router or I'd always do something on the computer and, and it, he'd come home and it's like, why isn't it the way I left it? Uh, it right. you know, so H Hank on a boat was always keep Hank away from touching everything because he's going to want to push all the buttons and, uh, and, and Lord knows what happens. Uh, but right. Oh, yeah. Were you, did you work for the barge company or was that just getting on when you can? Um, you know, I, I, I'd say I didn't work for the barge company until, um, I got out of college on the, on the, the physical side of it. Um, when I was in college, uh, I did internships at, at the barge company every year, um, in the office and I'd, I'd take trips out to see the facilities, but, um, I, I wasn't. Uh, after college, I, I spent a time as a deckhand uh, just to, you know, kind of understand all all aspects of it. But um, in college, yeah, I really got into computer science, and, and so I, I said, okay, I want to work in the in the computer science. Uh, or or I, I was doing programming, so I, I came back and said, I want to work in IT at the company. And classroom IT and company IT are a little different. It was quite the eye-opening experience. Um, I think some of the folks that are at, at Ingram today would still remember me sitting over their shoulder. And it's kind of like, okay, so we're going to do this SQL query. I'm like, cool. It's like, all right, then we're going to do this query. I'm like, okay, I, I, I want to write a program. It's like, well, we're writing a program over here. I'm like, great. I'm like, yeah, it's going to be done in three years. I'm like, Man, I don't know if I have the patience. <laughs> so, yeah. um, I I still enjoy computers, but um, I, I think I learned um, I don't I can't sit still long enough to to, to type out um, you know code and submit it to a, a report and yeah I, I think I learned a lot about how uh, just the business of IT works, which was which was pretty cool, but uh, um, it, it ultimately wasn't for me. Um, but then I, you know, I took some accounting classes and spent some time in accounting, spent some time with sales. So I really got the opportunity to, to see all areas of the business. Um, but I'd always come back to the, what interests me the most was always where the work was done. And I love nothing more than going out to Paducah, getting on a dock string. Uh, David Cert 
who was our um, uh, head of engineering for a long time. Uh, I'd always go out with him. He was always, yeah. I think what's always been cool is our engineering people are so much fun to be around because they love to tinker right. and and build things. And yeah. uh, you know, looking at a big boat is cool, but when you can have somebody walk you through and 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 show you all the odds and ends, uh, that was. I just love spending around time around those guys because. Um, and not to mention, they had all kinds of good stories. <laughs> but what led you to finance? Did you actually find that interesting? Because I was not a big fan myself. So, um, I was always told, take accounting, take finance. Uh, you're going to hate me for it, but do it because it, 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 it's worthwhile and everything comes down to the numbers. Um, you know, I was a business major, I was a business and Spanish major at, uh, at Washington and Lee. Uh, I knew I wanted to go into business. Uh, I love the idea of building things. Um, I, uh, I just knew accounting was part of it. And, and my, my grandfather, my, uh, maternal grandfather, he was a, a accounting major and a, and a lawyer. Um, and he did a lot in business and, and, you know, while, yeah, I, I don't ever remember a time at home we we talked about numbers of the business. It was always, well, you know, you you need to understand the concept that you you, you need to know where the cash is, how much is coming in, how much is going out, and the difference is what you get to keep. It's pretty simple. Well, then you get into an accounting class in college, and um, uh, simple is not the the term I would use to describe right. an accounting class. All right. Uh, but but I think if you treat it like a puzzle and um, every uh, every dollar that comes in, you know, double uh, or uh, accrual accounting uh, where you have debits and credits, you know, when you have uh, a, an input on one side, you have an output on the other and, and there's an offsetting and finding where that moves I, my appreciation really grew in business school as i learned uh to build a whiskey company you really have to understand cash flow um because uh, an income statement you know great profit loss well when you're in a business that requires a lot of cash to put down into barrels of inventory that you don't touch for years you, you find very quickly you can be profitable and run out of money uh, because if you're putting away all this inventory of whiskey, um, even though your net income is positive, you know, that doesn't that doesn't say I've got cash in the bank to pay my bills. Right. Um, so it, it, it's a it's a long way of saying accounting to me has been more of a necessary evil. But over time, I've become to uh, I've come to appreciate uh, just how important it is, and and it's kind of like doing a Sudoku, or you know, if you like to do a crossword, you can sit around and say, I'm I want to think through this concept. How does how is that going to flow through all the you know? You start with a dollar here, and by the time you run it through all the the counts and the the journals and the offsetting whatever, just make make it fun. All right. Well, that brings us, I guess, to the uh, the whiskey project. Um, of course, you said you got all your permits lined up and your taxes and all that stuff about 18 months 
before the first barrel went into the barge. Uh, what is that that physical process? I mean, are you pulling covers and lowering by crane one by one? Tell me about that. Uh, well, so when we first started out, um, let me begin by saying uh, the the biggest surprise for me is, or was in uh, after business school when I started. Yeah, you have to have lawyers look through this stuff because um, it's just the way the code's written. Uh, everybody I talked to said, well, you can clearly see right here in the codes, it says that it is illegal to warehouse spirits on a vessel. Um, oh, I didn't know that. So turns out the tax man wants to know where the money is. Yeah. Yeah, so um, it, it took us a minute, but we were able to find a, a lawyer who uh, had actually been to a tax conference earlier, uh, like a week before, and they talked about the Supreme Court case that came down and basically said, uh, just because you float, you're not automatically a vessel. You kind of have this test that you have to meet. And um, we use that logic to, to apply for an experimental permit, which allows us or really allows the the regulators the freedom the flexibility to um, allow a person to to try new things even if it may be against the code. Um, so once we got that determination that uh, that setup, uh, it was uh, now how do you get a barrel on a barge? And and so I uh, I cobbled together kind of what I'd saved up to that point, and I bought a few barrels to run this test, and. We did it out of Metropolis uh, at, at our um, Ingram facility up there. Um, I chartered the barge. Uh, well, actually, um, it was a spar barge, and I chartered uh, a, about 20 feet of it. Uh, got gotcha, you. Got gotcha. you. Yeah, I, I, that was where accounting came in handy because I only needed, you know, 20 square feet. So I didn't want the whole barge. I just wanted the, and um, a spar barge doesn't have a great economic uh opportunity so uh you know i think they said huh what was he thinking he paid us for 20 square foot of a barge that was a sunk cost anyway so yeah yeah uh anyways uh we worked out an arrangement and and so uh the semi truck shows up with six barrels and uh looking back on it now i think it's absolutely crazy that i used a 53 foot semi trailer to haul six barrels Okay. Normally, those things are moving ninety barrels, right? Yeah, uh, full, full barrels. So, uh, but now, now this truck shows up. Uh, it pulls in, hard's going. Uh, you know, here, here is the first time I'm about to touch my own whiskey barrel. Uh, been doing, mm -hmm. you know, been waiting mm -hmm. on this, waiting on this, and uh, open up the trailer, and I'm like, oh no. These barrels, they're stood up on their head, and they're all the way back in the back of the trailer. And I'm thinking, oh, no. And Lee Jennings was there with me, um, and uh, Lee was running the Metropolis facility at the time. And and I, I look over at Lee, and he looks at me, and we're like, how do we get the barrels out? And and he had a, uh, a picker. He said, well... I think we can maybe telescope this thing all the way in and and maybe we can get the forks around it. And meanwhile, the truck driver gets out. He's like, what the hell is taking so long? And we're like, well, how do we get the barrels out? He goes, oh, hell, let me show you. He goes over there. Yeah, this is a 60-something-year-old man. 
he gets his arm around this thing, barrel, you know, bear hugs it and just throws it to the ground. And I, I almost threw up because <laughs> these barrels aren't cheap. And this guy just right. threw the barrel. <laughs> right. And, and he said, oh, hell, they dropped these things out of two-story building, no problem. And I kind of said, oh, okay. And he's like, yeah, just throw them around. So we started rolling these barrels and, and, and re- quickly realized um, they are stout. I mean, if you go to Jack Daniels, for instance, or, or several of the distilleries in Kentucky, you'll actually see they have uh, bars on the first story and the second story of the warehouse. And the first story is to keep people from getting out. The second story is to keep barrels in because there was a time when people would actually roll barrels out of that second story. It would bounce, be perfectly fine, and they would roll it away and steal the whiskey. Uh, so that's how strong okay. a bourbon barrel is. Yeah. How many, uh, is it measured in gallons, purchased in gallons or liters or by barrel? Uh, well, by barrel, but there's different size barrels, but the pretty much the industry standard for bourbon is a 53 gallon barrel. It's a new American charred Oak. Uh, we use number four char, which means it's, it's been in there for, I think they cook it for like, uh, uh, almost two minutes, uh, with a flame and that, that chars the barrel, which caramelizes the sugars inside the wood. So the whiskey can, um, can get in there and start to extract that flavor. Um, but, uh, to, to, to your original question of uh, how did we get it into the barge? Well, we, we built some racks, uh, which, uh, these things, uh, they're the most impressive looking racks you've ever seen. Uh, I, I mean, it was really a work of art. I, I mean, we're talking, uh, some, you know, big tubes of steel and, and like, um, had wood, in there that had been cut out to allow the the barrel to be cradled and I mean, it was it was really pretty uh and you know we had the idea of oh okay well we don't want anybody out here seeing us load barrels and in, into the barge so we we put um uh which i mean if you've been to metropolis there's not a lot of people around but there there may be right. you know one guy uh that 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 slips, uh, you know, word. So, um, we put plywood and wrapped it in plywood and then moved the covers, dropped it in there and, and, and left it and, uh, um, came back six months later, um, which by this point, everybody knew, uh, that, that something was going on, but they didn't know which barge, um, cause we, we'd hidden it pretty well. And I'd get in the barge and I, I go over with my my drill and tap into it. And uh, man, after after just six months, um, and this was raw whiskey when it went in. I mean, it was brand new. It it tasted so good, it was so smooth. Um, but it was still six month old whiskey. But I didn't know any better. I was like, oh, I can taste. It. I can taste it. Uh, you got to start out with good juice first. That that's right. That's helpful. Um, right. But we had some control barrels that we tried it against, and and we could really see in just six months' time, uh, we were getting a different impact um, inside the the, the barrel. Th- there was something going on. It was smoother. It was softer. Um, the color was a, was a little darker. And again, six months is not long in bourbon world. I mean, that's that's a blink of an eye for what some of these barrels, you know, how long they sit, uh, but. Right. It, it was enough to get us excited and say, okay, we, 
we got to fill up a barge and and go from there. Um, I, I will say, just as an aside, uh, we used two barges. To, to, you know, we did a steel uh, a steel top barge and a and a fiberglass uh, cover barge. Um, the fiberglass barge uh, won out in the end. Uh, something about the the way the uh, you know the steel the all steel construction it, it sweated it it kept too much humidity in it it, it didn't work out so great um, but uh, after about four months um, we go back out uh, you know, before the six month mark to just check on the barge and um, the steel top barge had sunk with the whiskey in it well that's not good uh, I still have those barrels. And they are funky looking. I mean, they look like they've been sitting in the water for a minute. It was probably in the water for about a month before anybody noticed. But, uh, you know, just kind of the, the, the trials and tribulations of, of bringing something like that together. <laughs> Great. We got to fish our barrels out of the river. Has that barge been scrapped or is it refloated somewhere? Oh, gosh. By, by now, it, it, it probably is probably gone. Uh, this would have been, I- you know, 07. So... Uh, it was, or no, no, uh, 17. It, it would have been on its last legs then. So, uh, f- you know, five years, six years ago. Yeah, sure. but it's somewhere else now. And then how much longer until your first offering? And then, of course, we'll go through each each offering so far and what your, what your plans are. But uh, how long did you age uh, the stuff until the straight whiskey came out, the white label? Yeah. Sure, sure. So, um, okay, so we... We, we prove to ourselves that there's something going on with this uh, with this barge concept. So now we had to get the full operating permit together. Um, that took another year and a half. Uh, so um, I want to say we began uh, in the summer of 17 and, and didn't really get our final permit uh, until um, almost 2019. Uh, part of that was, even though we had this determination letter from the experimental permit that, yes, this was an approved, you know, thing, um, we still had to convince the folks at the other, you know, department in the agency that oversees us, which is the Tobacco, Alcohol, Tax, and Trade Bureau, the TTT, uh, the, the TTB, um, we still, we had to convince them that, Yes, it's okay. You can approve this. You know, n- nobody got fired for rubber stamping. You know what the what the last guy approved. But anytime you're going to be the first to approve something new, it 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 gets a little extra scrutiny. So uh, we had to go through that, um, and then started loading barrels in 2019. So January of 2019, more or less. Um, now, if you haven't noticed a theme here, I'll just highlight it, which is. I like to 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 tinker uh, with things of which I have very little knowledge. I didn't know anything about whiskey. I knew how to surround myself with folks that knew things about whiskey and and could advise us. Um, but the one question I forgot to ask was, okay, how do you load whiskey into a barge? Um, and we came up with all kinds of different prototypes. Um, we originally started out by loading a 20-foot a, a shipping container um, that we would crane in, and then we'd, we'd pull them out of that uh, it, so they were in the barge, and then we'd have to get them into the racks. Well, 
um, how do you get them into the racks inside a barge? I was like, okay, well, how about a forklift? Well, to move a forklift around inside the barge, it was going to eat up way too much space and, and not leave us enough room to keep barrels. Um, and I'm always keeping in the back of my mind, uh, I know what I get charged for this barge because nothing in life is free. Um, and I'm like, okay, uh, the more barrels I can get on there, the lower the cost, you know, so really that, that finance background and cash flow in my, in my mind started to kick in. Uh, so I thought I found the solution. I got onto a uh, Granger supply and I ordered two, not one, but two, because I figured two is faster than one, which proved out to be correct. Um, foot operated hydraulic lifts, pallet stack, okay. basically. Okay. All right, so yep. these barrels are each 550 pounds. And I said, well, you know, let's make sure we can get the forks long enough so we can lift two barrels at a time. And uh, so these things show up uh, before the first truck is supposed to come in, um, and we're going to load 300 barrels uh, in over the course of a week, um, 90 at a time per truck. So uh, th these things show up. We got them in the barge, and I put my foot on it, and I start pumping, and I go, uh this this isn't great it it it's slow it takes it takes a good you know couple 20 30 seconds just to get to the first level empty okay well i think we can make this work you know it only cost me between the two i think they were they were like 1500 dollars a piece so i was frugal i'm gonna keep more money into the barrels we're gonna mess with you know the creature comforts because this is a startup and we gotta run it lean so, um, uh, I had told all my friends that, you know, I've been talking to them ad nauseum about this project. Uh, and so they all show up, you know, like five or six of them. Uh, we've got a, a duck hunting camp is like 20 minutes away from this barge, uh, which we'd put in Wycliffe at the, at that point, uh, at the James Marine facility there in Wycliffe. And, uh, they're all excited. You know, we get there the night before we're, you know, everybody's you know, chatty, chatty. I, I realized pretty quickly I may have miscommunicated because th they all thought that, that we were, that they were going to be there to drink my whiskey. Uh, you know, they, they didn't realize that they were going to have to work to load whiskey. So there was a difference disconnect between the expectations and reality. So next morning we get there early. This is when I learned to think about logistics um, uh, the, the James Marine, they, they work from, um, I guess five to, to two on their shift, um, and take breaks. Um, uh, and so, uh, the truck is, is on its way and it gets there at about 10 o'clock and that's break time. I'm like, okay, all right, all right, all right. All right. Oh, so it's okay. So they come back after break and, you know, this is in the summertime. So it was kind of warm, um, when we start loading everything. Uh, no, I guess it was early spring or mid-spring, but regardless, it was a warm day. Uh, we open up the truck, bam, fumes, just that beautiful smell just hits you. And everybody's, oh, we're excited, yeah. excited. Uh, well, then we start loading the whiskey uh, barrels into this container. It could hold like 55 at a time. We truck it down, and uh, uh, you know, then they, they crane it in to the barge with a giant Manitoc crane. I'm like, eh. Uh, this may not be the most efficient thing, but yeah, well, it's first run. We'll see. 
barrels get in. Oh, and I'd also hired a video crew to, you know, document the day and get content for the the, the website and everything. So, sure. Um, sure. Yeah. So so we're out there and and I, I get two barrels up onto my my pallet stacker and I start pumping. And that's when I realized that hydraulics under pressure act different than hydraulics that are just, you know, free weight. Right. And and so where it had taken me maybe 10 seconds to get to that first level um, without weight on it, once you put 1,100 pounds, it took about two minutes of straight pumping. And uh, and then you have to clock the barrels in such a way that when they stop rolling, that they're, they're bung, the hole is, is facing straight up. That way the whiskey doesn't pop it out and you, you lose the contents. Um, so we roll it in and the barrel gets crooked. It gets caught in the racks. Uh, we could not get the, the clocking right for the first like three hours. And we did, I don't know, I think we did like 10 barrels an hour. It was horribly slow. Um, three guys didn't even show up after lunch. I mean, it, it was <laughs> a, we realized very quickly that we were beyond our skis. Uh, but, um, one guy, uh, happened to stick it out and, uh, he, uh, he was built like an ox and I, I was glad to have him as, as my friend, Scott and, uh, and everybody else pretty much ran away and, and Scott stuck it out and was like, you know what, man, you didn't know it, but this was a job interview you passed. Um, and, and I, I hired him. I was like, I, I gotta have. I got to have you on, on board here. So, um, yeah, it, it was pretty much, uh, uh, that's when Scott joined us. Uh, and, and now he's our, our master blender. Uh, but that's got its own on story. Cause turns out not only could he move barrels, but he also could taste them and describe what he was tasting, uh, more so than anybody I, I've ever seen. So, uh, I got so stinking lucky, but, uh, ultimately this barge is now, it's now got uh, um, that first barge is a little smaller. It, it's got uh, 1,800 barrels on it. We just had um, our second barge built. We've loaded uh, 800 barrels on it. So we did 800 barrels in three days uh, this last uh, November. It was about a November 15th, actually. Okay. That week. Uh, so we we've learned a few things. We perfected the process. Uh, but I just I think back on that first time when we started loading. Um, uh, it, it turns out you get what you pay for and, uh, it helps to ask questions of people that know. And they said, well, why don't you just buy a Ricker? I'm like, what the heck is a Ricker? Well, a Ricker in, in the bourbon world is what everybody has. It's this little hydraulic platform that, you know, with the press of a button, it goes up, you know, you can load a hundred barrels in two hours with it, uh, versus, okay. yeah. And it's electric. Right. But uh, uh, wow, that 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 those first couple of days and and the word I just remember the sheer fear uh, I felt because that first truck we were only had taken like thirty barrels out of it and the second truck showed up and he's wanting to be unloaded and I was getting demurrage and detention charges and and it it was going horrible so we had to pivot we had to um, that was a uh, a learning opportunity that uh, operations is best uh, tinkered with on a small scale <laughs> before you try to do it all in one shot. Uh, what can you tell me? I know a, a little bit um, about the uh, 
the production and aging of whiskey until I guess from start till it arrives in your barge. Yeah, um, look, I, I'll, I'll be very frank and say I know uh, less about the distillation process than I do the aging process. So, um, you know, up until really this, this, so bourbon's going on a bit of a bourbon boom these days. Um, if, if you look back um, in the in the 70s, it uh, was really the, the peak of consumption of bourbon. And uh, I think what is interesting today is we as a country have not, uh, we have not uh, started to consume the level uh, of bourbon that we did in the, the mid 70s, even though we have 50, 60 million uh, more people of drinking age in this country than we did in the 70s. So um, when people look at the data uh, and, and with the cocktail culture and all this, there, there is a big run, but, but bourbon really fell out of favor uh, until about the the, the mid '90s, and and really the early 2000s, Mad Men cocktail culture that came about, and and bourbon began to see some serious growth. And when I got into it, uh, or was first exposed to it in 2015, you know, it'd been on this kind of seven year, six percent a year growth trend. Um, I said, well, gosh, I hope I'm not too late. Well. Since I've been in, it's been closer to eight, nine, ten percent a year in in growth sure. in sales. Right. Uh, so so bourbon's having a, a minute, but in the you know in the eighties, as as bourbon was in serious decline, there was only about seven or eight big distilleries in Kentucky. Um, I just saw a statistic the other day um, nationwide. There's now twenty two hundred craft distilleries. Uh, up from like 200 10 years ago. So um, when you, when you look at that landscape, you know whiskey is uh, a product that takes time. You, you you make it, you have to age it and sit on it. Um, in in 2009, there were a lot of brands uh, that were coming to market all of a sudden. Again, kind of at, as this whiskey boom is taking off, people are trying to get into it. Uh, Bellmead Bourbon here in Nashville. They they were one of the kind of the early guys to get in. I'd say of the of the the current boom, which we're more or less kind of in the back end of now. I think um, Seagram's had uh, a plant in uh, Lawrenceburg, Indiana, and uh, Seagram's uh, had to give up that plant, and it was bought by a company uh, in Kansas called MGP. Uh, Midwest Grain Products, and when they bought that 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 facility, they didn't know much about the bourbon market, and and so they started selling off aged whiskey, and you could get ten year old whiskey I, I hear for two thousand dollars a barrel, which um, you know in in today's day with inflation and whatnot, it you know a new barrel of whiskey, a year old barrel of whiskey actually is, is, is trading for about that. So you imagine starting a, a whiskey brand with a product that is 10 years old, you know, uh, you're a 18 month old company and you got a 10 year old juice. Well, you're, you're getting it from somewhere else. And, and that's where a lot of these newer brands, newer being in the last 10 years started was on the backs of, um, a, a lot of them were MGP out of Indiana, uh, and that old Seagram's juice. Well, 
they they hired a guy from Maker's Mark uh, to lead up their sales efforts, and they just started raising prices, raising prices, and people kept buying, kept buying, and eventually, I'd say the market was set. And and you know, you're you see an eight year old Kentucky uh, bourbon, you know that it, it may trade for eight nine thousand dollars a barrel, and and that's before it's got a brand on it and even bottled. Um, and and so the prices that that the that, that's juices in today's take, market. That's in today's, that's in today's market. Yeah. Nine thousand dollars. That's today's. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. No uh, yeah. No, it's it is. Um, and Kentucky commands a premium because it's Kentucky, and Kentucky and bourbon are, you know, one and one. But yeah, it's it's been a a, a big growth. But so all that to say, we started out um, with that same place at, at MGP. And a lot of uh, your listeners that are bourbon drinkers will recognize that name. Um, but uh, MGP was really kind of the first in the contract distillation game. Um, we started out, uh, that's where those barrels uh, from the first batch, that first experimental came from, and that's where they are now. Um, uh, or, or excuse me, that's that's where we started with for our straight whiskey, which was our white label. Um, we've now moved all of our production to uh, Owensboro. There's a distillery there called Green River. Uh, we've been laying down whiskey with them since, um, I want to say it was 2018. So um, everything that we are bottling now, we are, we are pretty much, we, I think we're 100% through our, our MGP stash. Uh, so everything now is um, is is uh, Green River out of Owensboro. Um, but I, I say all that to say um, there is uh, the distillation process, uh, you know, you take the corns, uh, which bourbon is a majority corn. Uh, whiskey is a, a distilled grain. Uh, bourbon is is a subcategory of that. It has to be made in the United States, um, kind of like how scotch has to be made in Scotland. Um, and then you have to use a new charred oak barrel. You can't reuse barrels for, for bourbon. Bourbon barrels are typically sent to Scotland for scotch once they're used. Um, or, or uh, the Caribbean for rum, um, but can't reuse a barrel for, for uh, bourbon. And um, once you hit four years old, you don't have to tell anybody how old it is. Uh, some do, some don't. Uh, once it's two years old, it becomes straight. So if it says straight on the bottle, it's at least two years. Um, if it's if, if it doesn't have an age statement, then you know it's at least four. Um, the, 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 the grains come in to the distillery. Uh, they... They process them, they, they hammer them, they smash them up, and they put them in uh, a, a vat, basically. Um, add water, yeast. Uh, the, the yeast converts the, um, the sugars in the, the grains to, uh, to alcohol. And then uh, you basically cook off the alcohol uh, and, and then in the distillation process, it, and it gets condensed. And so you concentrate, you start with what is essentially a beer, with a 5%, 6% alcohol content and bring that down to, you know, 140 proof more or less, um, which is 70% uh, alcohol. Right. They then uh, will add water to that um, to, to get it to uh, the barrel proof and that's your barrel entry proof. Um, so once it goes into that barrel, that new charred oak barrel, um, that's where we come in. So we contract with the distillery out of uh, uh, Green River. Um, they are making 
whiskey for a lot of people. They've got a big operation um, that I think, you know, tens of thousands of barrels uh, a year capacity. And, and distillation is really a, a scale game. Uh, it, unlike craft beer, where you can make a really good uh, craft beer and, and be a small, small guy, uh, whiskey, you really need all the bells and whistles because the quality control is so important. Uh, and, and so it's almost the reverse in whiskey uh, that you, the bigger producers tend to make the better stuff. Uh, it, it, they've also got the capital to experiment where the younger guys uh, usually a little bit more restrained. Uh, so, so we'll take that barrel once it's, it's been full. Uh, now we contract, we don't source. So the sourcing model is where you find that 10 year old barrel and you slap your label on it. Uh, contract is where you say, here's what I want you to make. Here's how I want you to make it. And here's what I want you to put it in. Uh, and they say, okay, here's your price. Then we take it. So that barrel gets full. That's when we start. So we pick up. Is, is there a minimum barrel purchase for certain um, mash bills and things? Yeah, certainly. Uh, good question. Yes. Uh, it depends on the size of the distillery. Um, normally it's 200 to 300 barrels. Uh, and, and so, you know, we're, we're buying enough in, in bulk and have been for uh, a couple of years now that, that we're able to, you know, buy what we want, um, and, and make it the way we want it and not have to say, okay, well, you know, what's just off the shelf. Uh, so, right. so we take that barrel, we'll bring it over to, um, to the barge and, uh, and then we load it in the barge and that's, that's where the aging begins, right? So distillation takes a week, uh, from grain to, to barrel. And then, uh, the aging is years, right? So, uh, inside that barge, um, we've got temperature, we've got heat and we've got humidity that is different from any other warehouse. Uh, we call them rick houses or barrel houses in Kentucky. Right. right. Yeah. So, um, the, the motion encourages the whiskey to, uh, slosh around and interact more with the with the barrel which is where the aging occurs um the the heat the humidity uh drives the whiskey in and out of the barrel big heat changes heat uh, opens the pores cold close them up so kind of moving them in and out of the wood and then humidity uh allows the sugars of the barrel to to stay moist and active and um you know it's kind of uh a uh a syrup will dissolve easier than a cube of sugar, kind of the same concept. Uh, and, and so it's all about extracting the flavor out of that barrel. Uh, and, and so, yeah, we'll take it, put it in the barge and, and we don't pull it off till it's time to bottle, uh, which is, uh, to my knowledge, uh, the only floating barrel house, um, it's certainly in the United States, uh, but possibly the world. And, uh, and we've got a patent pending, in the U.S. and Canada for it, and actually a granted patent in uh, the U.K. So, uh, should be the only people, you know, barge aging whiskey for a few years to come. Sure. Uh, how long uh, did you age the straight whiskey? And w- w- how old was it when you acquired? I guess what was the process for each offering? Uh, so the straight whiskey, we uh, did not age completely in the barge. Um, we put it in there, uh, at, it had about a year and a half, uh, of age on it. And we let it go another, uh, two years, uh, inside the barge before we started pulling it off. And, uh, you know, part, part of that is, um, 
I didn't want to be having this conversation with you a year and a half from now. Uh, it, it's certainly, you got to pay the bills. So uh, we came out with the straight whiskey. It had a little bit of terra firma aging on it. And uh, it, it was really kind of a happy accident. You've got the red label back there. The reds are rye. Um, and so the, uh, the straight whiskey was originally going to be a way for us to approximate the mash bill of the rye. And so we took a rye bourbon and a rye base bourbon, so still majority corn, and then a rye whiskey, uh, which was almost uh, predominantly rye, and, and mixed them together. And, and I was going to make that my rye, uh, playing around with it. As we went through the labeling process, found out that, uh, well, actually, when you make a take a bourbon and a rye and you mix them together, uh, you can't call it a bourbon or a rye because it kind of violates the, the conventions of the two. So you have to go up to the, the next broadest category, which is whiskey. So it's a straight whiskey because it's two years old at least, right? So um, that was where that came about. Now, the, the white color... Uh, it was originally our first release was going to be blue, and and I, you know, I I kind of had a, a pause moment. I said, well, hang on, um, if I've got to call this a straight whiskey, I really like the blue. I'm I'm going to reformulate the way that we think about this. I said, let's go with white because white for whiskey, and then we'll do blue for bourbon and or the bees for bourbon and and uh, yeah, blue and black, and then red for rye, and, and so that's kind of where the the colors come from is just. You know, rye starts with R, red starts with R. Um, so the the um, the straight whiskey was originally going to have a, a three-barrel blend, uh, or, or three different mash bills, rather. Uh, usually it's about a, a 20 barrels or so, 20 to, to 30 barrels, depending on, on what we have available. Um, the black label there that you have, that's our flagship. Uh, well, as we got to tasting the barrels that were going to go into the straight whiskey, uh, the... There was one particular mash bill that was absolutely excellent. And uh, I said, I, I can't blend this into something else. We got to have some way to, to, to showcase uh, how good this, this whiskey is. And that's where we came up with the idea of, well, you know, Old Forester has this uh, expression called the birthday bourbon, which is kind of meant to be every year their favorite whiskey uh, profiled in, under one expression. So we came up with the idea, why don't we create this flagship uh, and this is where we'll put our, our best stuff, uh, and, and we'll make it an annual release to where each year as we're tasting barrels and setting them aside, uh, we'll say, okay, our, our best goes into to the black. And, uh, you can actually thank your, um, one of your previous guests, Turbo Hughes for the, uh, the name flagship. Cause, uh, you know, I was trying to figure out reserve and private select. Those are really overused in my opinion. And, uh, I, I called up Turbo one day. I'm like, you know, as my resident, um, uh, uh, towboat creative. Uh, I, I said, what do you think? What, what, what should I call this thing? He says, Oh, hell man. Yeah. Yeah. I call it flagship. That's, that's the best boat in the fleet. Uh, and, and in his way. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think he threw some color around, you know, like, Oh, hell, that's what I do. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. Yeah. He put out the cigarette and, uh, and, and so anyways, <laughs> uh, flagship is, is, uh, where that name came from. Cause it's, the biggest, the baddest vessel in your fleet. I think we're we got the barge thing going on, so let's call it flagship. That's where that name came from. And and the last one that you have there, that's our our uh, our blue label is um, our bourbon. So um, this is really our house bourbon, 105 proof. It's a wheat 
based mash bill. Um, I tend to go uh, to, to wheat bourbons. That's just always been my attraction. Uh, wheat is a softer grain than rye. Uh, it, it actually takes it a little bit longer because um, wheat bourbons tend to be a little bit more viscous, so they don't have that penetration into the wood um, as, as quickly as, say, a rye-based uh, bourbon, which tends to be a little thinner. Uh, but I think the wheat has reacted extremely well to, to the barge. And, uh, you know, we're, uh, we haven't even started to get into those higher up barrels inside the barge. Um, again, cause I tried to load them with a foot operated pallet jack. Uh, and, and so, uh, it wasn't till a little bit later on that we got the right equipment to go higher up in, in the racks where you get a much hotter temperature environment and, and the hotter the temperature, the more, it, it pushes the whiskey into the wood. And, uh, and right. so we, we got a couple, uh, barrels that'll be coming out of that, uh, here in the next year that I'm, I'm really excited about the, the color extraction they have. It's, um, it's, it's pretty good. So, you know, what happens is, is we, we go through, we, we take a hundred barrel sample, kind of a cross section from high, low, middle, uh, and we just taste them. And and we'll taste through about a hundred different barrels, uh, narrow it down to, you know, 20 barrels or so. And, and that's, that's our blend. Uh, and so we're, we're looking for, um, certain qualities, you know, uh, sometimes you don't want to just take, uh, all these barrels that taste really sweet. Sometimes you want to throw in a barrel that's, that's gotten maybe a little bit of woodiness to it to kind of come in and, and, uh, even out some, some sweetness with some spice or so, uh, as you are, um, uh, tasting through this barrel house, you'll, you'll find that bourbon barrels in different locations will develop a profile totally different, uh, than, than say even its neighbor. And it's just based on the wood that was used in that barrel. Maybe there was a little draft that changed the way the air moved. Uh, it's, it's really cool. You, uh, we're, we're still trying to figure out, is there a sweet spot in the barge? Uh, but (laughs) So far, it seems to be every single barrel. <laughs> uh, I think you told me at the, uh, it was, I think, a two or three boat christening there in reserve that the straight whiskey would be discontinued. Is that still the plan? Yeah. Uh, so we we did not buy any more of the, uh, the components for that particular uh, blend. And part of that was, you know, I really wanted to invest more into the, uh, the bourbon, the blue label. Um, sure. I, I just, I didn't know, I didn't know at the time, you know, you're, you're making these inventory decisions years in advance. Um, right. Yeah. I didn't know how well it was going to go over. Um, and so we just, we, we, we may bring it back. Um, I, I certainly like each of those components of the mash bill that we've, we played around with, but uh, you know, as, as far as um, focusing on a core lineup, I think having these three, the bourbon, the, the flagship and the rye. Um, and then we're also playing around with a, a, a potential single barrel release, which could reuse that white color, uh, down the road. Um, you know, that's, that's where we're moving the brand towards. Okay. Is there any other expansion you're looking to do, or does that pretty much cover the extent of your, your intentions? Well, that's, that's it on the, uh, on the lineup. Uh, wise, you know, we um, we just recently moved our uh, barges to the uh, Ingram Barge facility in in Columbus. So 
Um, from an expansion standpoint, it's going to be focused on loading up more barges at this point. Um, and Columbus uh, is, in, in my mind, one of the prettiest parts of Kentucky. I mean, it's it's almost like you take the, the bluegrass region and set of horses, you, you put cornfields and, you know, driving out there. I, I think it could be a really cool um, uh, attraction one day to, to have this um, on the, you know, on the river. So um, I, I think where my head is now is um, make sure we make good product and, uh, and then keep growing the brand and, and keep growing the, uh, the whiskey stocks. Where are these, these uh, two barges floating around right now? Uh, they're in Columbus. Okay. Yeah. At, uh, tied at, up at in a, the fleet? They're, they're somewhere in an undisclosed location uh, within a 10-mile range. <laughs> sure. I, I will say you're probably going to see them uh, stand out before too long. There's this uh, microflora, they call it, uh, that, that grows in the presence of alcohol. And, uh, and so it pretty much turns everything downstream and downwind uh, black with this uh, okay. organism that grows only only in the presence of whiskey. So our first barge started out with a white fiberglass cover. Uh, it's now purely black. Uh, mm. So they, uh, um, and, and it's funny, the guys at James Marine would always say, can we scrub that off? Can we clean that up for you? You know, we'll do it free of charge. It's just, we're tired of looking at it. I'm like, no, 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 guys. That is a, that is a sign of, of you're in the business. You know, right. uh, people work really hard to get that patina, what I like to call it. Is there any intention or talk to uh, slap these into a toe that goes down and back up? No, no. I, uh, well, it, we have to be sensitive on the uh, the whiskey on a on a vessel, right? So, okay, uh, right. If it's if it's permanently moored uh, and uh, at least in that location, uh, we don't violate our uh, uh, our covenants that we've, we've made gotcha. with the feds and, uh, sure. they always win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, anything else you'd like to share personally, professionally, anything? Well, um, you know, we've got the holidays coming up. So, uh, all I can say is, you know, to your listeners that want to learn more ingramwhiskey.com, uh, there's a little find page on there. You can figure out where you can pick some up nearby. Um, or check us out on Instagram and Facebook. But uh, no, I, I think uh, it, this has just been great to talk to you, Tim, and um, excited about your your new venture here, and thrilled to be a part of it. Thanks. Uh, is uh, are you are you available in all the lower forty eight? Oh no, um, we are available mostly along the river. So Minnesota, uh, Wisconsin, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Louisiana. Um, we're, we're talking about launching Ohio and Missouri, uh, here this next year, but, uh, nothing firm, but I, I hope to have some news to share there soon. Okay. Uh, and then Sealbox, uh, do they ship to states that aren't listed on your distribution? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, on our, on our find us page, uh, Sealbox is our, um, kind of main internet retailer that we work with. Uh, they they ship to I think fourteen additional states that we don't have physical distribution to. So uh, okay. yeah, if 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 you're not in one of those, uh, Sealbox is is a a great great answer. Well, Hank, listen, I appreciate you uh, joining me here, and I look forward to uh, the next entries into the market. Well, well, thank you for all the support, Tim, and uh, great to be with you. Have a merry Christmas and happy holidays to you guys. Thanks a lot. You too.
All right, bye-bye now.